This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Spectre Gunner, the AC-130 Gunship, and the author is David M. Burns, and he is Master Sergeant U.S. Air Force retired, and he's coming to us from Thailand. Hello, David. Hi. Uh, good morning. Great to have you with us. Uh, where are you in Thailand? I'm in a small town called Uban Ratchathani, which is the northeast part of the country. It's uh, right close to the Mekong River, which separates Laos from Thailand. Well, we'll find out later why you've decided to live there. And, of course, uh, your book kind of tells uh, a lot of the reasons why you fell in love with that part of the world. Uh, you say that your book is the only book that tells the tale of the AC-130 Spectre gunship. And so we'll find out why that's so important and what happened um, with you and your comrades and, of course, uh, your desire to to just, I guess, make sure that you could do every, everything possible to rescue your comrades uh, time and time again. What it was it like to leave your Air Force base every night, not knowing if you would return? So that was the, was it a fear? Uh, well, yes, at first it was, because at, we took off at night, and when we crossed the Mekong River, we were in bad guy country immediately. And once you got across there, there was no turning back until the mission was completed. So what so year? Every what, night. What year was this? I started in 1969, and I finished up in 1975. 1975. So before we get into more details about your book and your experiences during the war in Vietnam and, and uh, other places in that part of the country, or the world, I mean, uh, tell us a little bit about your background. Uh, you seem to have a desire to get into the military even before you were legally of age. Yeah, yeah, well, I was dirt poor growing up in Kansas City, Missouri, on the East Bottoms, and the Korean War had just started. It, the Korean War started in 1950. And in August 1951, when I turned 15 years old, I decided that I wanted to go into the military and go to Korea. But the, the problem there was the birth certificate, so I kind of... I kind of forged it a little bit, <laughs> and uh, I went in. I tried to get into the Marine Corps, but the, the gunnery sergeant there looked at, took one look at me, and said, "Go home and grow up." <laughs> so then I went into the Navy recruiter, and I presented my brand new birth certificate, and lo and behold, he accepted it. So he accepted me on the 20th of August, and I left Kansas City on the 31st of August, 1951 for San Diego, California, for Navy boot camp. And you were, uh, with the Navy, you got involved with aviation? Yes. Just right out of boot camp, I became a 
an aviation weapons technician, aviation ordnanceman. And the first command that they put me on was the USS Princeton. It was an aircraft carrier. And two months later, I found myself in Korea. And so from that, though, you just fell in love with flying. Uh, yes. Yes, I did. As, as a young 15-year-old, everything about that fascinated me. The carrier, the, the jets, the landings, the takeoffs, the weapons, everything. So how'd you end up in the Air Force? My last duty station in the Navy was from 1964 to 1967 as a recruit company commander in San Diego. I was a first-class petty officer at the time, and I was training young men to become sailors. I wanted to go to Vietnam, but the Navy didn't see it that way. They wanted to put me back on an aircraft carrier. So I went looking around for a home, and the Air Force really needed weapons people at the time. So they accepted me, and uh, I got out of the Navy on 9th of March, 67, and I re-enlisted in the Air Force in 13 March in 67. And in July of 67, I found myself in Samarang, Vietnam. As an aerial gunner, now tell us about what that means on one of these big C-130s. Well, we have, when I got first got on the gunship, we had four 20-millimeter cannon and four miniguns. My job was to maintain those guns, to aim them, and in, in the event of a, a malfunction, to fire them for the pilot. But the pilot was a primary gunner. We made sure that the guns were loaded and they were operational. So, and, um, and you said you wanted to go to Vietnam. You wanted to get involved in the war. Why, why was that? Well, at the time, I believed in it. I believed that we were doing the right thing. I, I kind of grew up in Asia because I, when I was in the Navy, I, was, I spent all my time in the Pacific. And I just wanted to get into the action, so to speak, and find out exactly what was going on. And I found out. You found out uh, exactly. Your squadron destroyed more than 15,000 trucks loaded with war munitions destined for, destined for South Vietnam and Cambodia. And, of course, uh, it was constant heavy aircraft, anti-aircraft and missile fire. Uh, tell us about some of those, I'm sure, hair-raising experiences. <laughs> they were hair-raising. As soon as we crossed what we call the fence, which is Mekong River, 25 minutes later, we were flying up and down the Ho Chi Minh Trail. And the Ho Chi Minh Trail went everywhere from North Vietnam all the way down into Cambodia. And our job was to interdict uh, enemy truck traffic and stop it. Their job was to shoot us down. So every, every intersection and everything, they, they had guns. They had 23 millimeter, 37 millimeter, and 57 millimeter anti-aircraft guns. And we had to be there. We wasn't going to run off. So it was, just became a shooting match every night. They would fire at us to try to keep us from, uh, hitting the trucks, destroying the trucks. And we would fire back at both them and the trucks. And there wasn't a night went by that, that one aircraft at least didn't get some kind of battle damage. But they all came back to the base until 22 April 1970. And what happened? Every night it was just uh, continuous firing, sweating, 
uh, had no time for fear at the time because the, the pilot would uh, break the aircraft left to right to get away from the uh, anti-aircraft fire, and then he'd roll in, fire on the truck, roll out, and roll back in when the guns uh, came up. And these C-130s, for people who are not aware, this is a huge aircraft. Yes, it is. Uh-huh. Four-engine mm-hmm. aircraft. It, uh, we, had, we started with 11-man crew, and we, we carried a couple of specialists. We gave to a 14-man crew. And each man was dependent upon each other for their very survival. If we ever got shot down over there, the chances of being rescued were almost impossible, almost nil. The Laotians would execute the flyers if they caught them, and the North Vietnamese would use the flyers for bond chips later on down the road. But we had very, very, very few survivors when the aircraft got shot down. Our first aircraft that was shot down on 22 April, out of 11 men, we only had one make it, and he made it by accident. He was driven forward by the fire, and he bailed out the scanner's window on the right side and landed in the jungle. And the uh, air rescue people at uh, Udon, Thailand, picked him up and brought him back. Now, you say that 52 men were killed in six aircraft, with the six aircraft being shot down? Yes, yes. That was in a period from 1969 to 1972 was the last time we lost an aircraft. Did you ever go down in one of your uh, C-130s? No, no, I, I was uh, almost. I came very, very close on 19 June 1972, but no, I always seemed to make it back. My my aircraft commander would bring it back, even though it had many holes in it, and uh, we'd, we'd land successfully. And during those missions, even though the plane made it back, did you have casualties aboard? Yes, yes, I did. Uh, in fact, on my last mission, 1972 in June, I was one of the casualties. Uh, three gunners were injured. Uh, one of them had uh, bad knees. He fractured both his kneecaps. The other one hurt his back, and I broke my right wrist and my ribs, launching a countermeasure device against a missile. And uh, the missile was, was coming right at us. It was going to hit us. And I launched this missile, and it, at the last minute, the, uh, I launched the flare. The last minute, the missile hit the flare and knocked us around the aircraft, and we came home, back to Ubon. So heat-seeking kind of missile, and went toward the flare. Yes, yes, it was okay. a Sam 7. Now, how? tell us about, uh, you've been credited with saving the lives of 14 crew members. Uh, tell us about that. Okay, well, that was the same mission. Uh, when we went across the fence, the flare launcher, which is the primary uh, ECM device, countermeasures, was inoperative. And the night before, we had lost a gunship in the same area to a heat-seeking missile, and only two men bailed out of that by accident. The rest of the people went in. And all those men were returnees. They were veterans, and the, it hit the, the missile hit the right wing, Blew the wing off, and, and the gunners didn't have parachutes on, so we know what happened there. And it just broke apart in three different pieces. So the next night, we went up for a combination armed rec- reconnaissance and survivor beeper check to see if there's possibly anybody on the ground. About 45 minutes into the mission, 
the same thing happened to us. There was a heat-seeking missile launched. The engineer picked up the launch, immediately notified the aircraft commander that we were under attack by a missile. He put that gunship into a 95-degree negative 2G right bank, and he told me to get the flare out in order to get the missile off our engine. As I launched the flare, I broke my wrist and my ribs, but I did get the flare out. And the missile hit the flare 15 feet behind the aircraft. And when it did, of course, it just lit up the rear of the aircraft. We could see everybody. And I thought we were still out of control, but it, it, it hit the flare. And that's when, uh, by me launching that flare, uh, that's when I saved the lives of my crew. Now, you got out of the Air Force when? Your first time you got out? Uh, I finally got out of the Air Force in 1978. I, re I enlisted in the Air Force in 1967. But you, and I guess maybe I'm asking the wrong question. You, you uh, I guess, left the war, but then you returned. How many times did you return on your own? I returned to the, to the 60th Special Operations Squadron four times, four years. And you didn't have to? No. No, you, you volunteered? Yes. You, volu they, they, you volunteered? Because of the, Go ahead. Because of the mission, uh, they would only take volunteers. That, it was that dangerous? Yes, and volunteers were hard to come by. Why did you do that? Here, you're a family man. Uh, you, you know, you're putting your duty before your family. Uh, what was the, the absolute drive that you were feeling? After we lost our first aircraft in 1970... Uh, I just felt I, I, I couldn't leave. I couldn't leave my people. Uh, flying with the same people every night, night after night, seven nights a week, in danger every night, being shot at every night, not knowing if you're ever going to get home. As a matter of fact, I, I didn't think I was going to come home. I had, I had resigned to, to dying over there. And all of a sudden, I found myself alive and getting on an airplane to go back to the United States. I just didn't feel right leaving my people, my friends, my fellow crew members to carry on that, that war the way they were doing it and for me to go find some little peaceful place to be. I just, just, I just couldn't do it. Uh, that, must have been, it like, that must have been quite a reunion when they saw you come back. It was, it was, yes. As soon as I got back to the United States, I contacted the uh, the head man, the, the palace gun uh, head sergeant, which is a sergeant Brian Morrison. I called him from Travis and told him I had to go back. And he mentioned the same thing. Well, what about your family? And I said, well, I have to go back. So he had me a set of orders waiting when I report, finally reported to my temporary duty station in Grand Forks, North Dakota. And I had a set of orders waiting there to return back to Spectre. And six months later, I was back. How did your wife deal with that? Uh, she didn't. She didn't like it at all. Uh, as most women, I guess, she, she just couldn't understand my reasoning. And I, I don't think I fully explained my reasoning. I just said it's something I have to do. And that's never a good excuse for, for a wife. But right. best I could come up with. Yeah, well... And now you live in Thailand. That that is your home. You 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 literally fought for that 
area of the world, you uh, watched others die, you almost died yourself, so that is home. Yes, that's, this is my home. I go back to the United States every year, too, to attend the Squadron's reunion in Fort Walton Beach, Florida, and to see my daughter. But other than that, I, this is my home. This is where I'll finally, finally check out. Master Sergeant, U.S. Air Force, retired David M. Burns. We've been listening to his incredible story. He tells it all in his book, Spectre Gunner, the AC-130 gunship. David, tell us how to get your book. Uh, Amazon.com has it on sale, and iUniverse has it on sale. There's a, it's, it's available in the hardcover and softcover and in Kindle ebook format. Ah, great. I have a Kindle. Well, I have to get it. I'm always looking for a great military book. So <laughs> thank you, David, for being with us. And thank you so much for telling your story. Uh, that's so needed today to hear people who are committed to I'm, uh, all the thing I can say is God and country. Uh, it, it may sound corny, but duty, honor, and country still means something. Thank you, David. Okay, thank you. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear these latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Evermore, people have the means to live, but no meaning to live for. These are the words of Dr. Victor Frankel. The inspiration for the movie, Victor and I. That's V-I-K-T-O-R and I, movie.com. And Talk Sense Radio, The Meaning Connection. With host, Mary Similuka. And frequent contributor, Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central on toginet.com. More and more people today are discarding their quest for money, possessions, and things. And are instead beginning a serious quest to find meaning in life. Until now, these discussions were historically in the hands of priests, ministers, and scribes, then to philosophers, psychiatrists, and psychologists. Now, these deep discussions are where they should be, in the hands of individuals, on the air, with you. Talk Sense Radio, The Meaning Connection, with your host, Mary Similuka, and frequent contributor, Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central, on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Surviving Curtis Hall, The Lure of Blood. And the author is L.A. Matthews. And Linda joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Linda. Hi, Steve. How are you? Great to have you with us. This is quite a page-turner, especially for teenagers, 
We have all kinds of, of course, uh, relationships, and we have vampires. <laughs> yes, we do. <laughs> In those tunnels, those tunnels, those mysterious tunnels underneath the school. Yep, it's a lot of fun down there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's the way they get around from the campus. It's attached to the tunnels on the mines, which are right adjacent to the school and the campus. So there's a lot of area down there to cover. A lot of area. We'll learn more about all the details, learn about the characters. Uh, but first, tell us about yourself, your, a little bit about your background, and why you decided to write this book. Well, Steve, um, I'm, I'm a mom. I have three kids and uh, a hairdresser. been a hairdresser for, for many years and heard about raising kids even before I had them but had no idea how complicated it could be. And my main inspiration for writing the book was a real desire to connect and communicate with my teenager because that is a whole nother kettle of fish. Once they get to that age, their their interests go in all kinds of directions, and they don't want to spend much time talking to you anymore. And that was big for me. I really wanted to try to get back to that. So uh, we formed kind of our own little book club. She started feeding me all kinds of great, great stuff, and we'd talk about it, talk about the stories, talk about the characters. And one night I thought, gosh, if, if I could write one of these books, we'd really have something to share. And that was huge, huge for us. And uh, communication just started to flow as the book came along. And they were so excited, all three of them, but especially my teenager. She was just so excited to, to go through this whole experience with me. Oh, what a bonding experience to create something like this. And, you know, you're dealing, your book, Surviving Curtis Hall, is emphasizing very real challenges that face teens today. I know we already said it has vampires in it, but there's an underlying current uh, plot that is just, what are teenagers dealing with today? They have so much to deal with. There's so many challenges. They're, these kids, if they want to even hope to get into college, they're juggling academics and sports and activities and friendships and relationship skills. And that's just to get into college. <laughs> then they have to achieve on top of that. It's, it's so overwhelming, I think, for them. Life is, is not simple the way it used to be. And that's what they're facing today, and they need all the help from us that they can get. Well, and as you pointed out, these characters are really reflecting real life in general amongst teenagers. With all of that, these, uh, you know, the juggling of new love and the maintaining of lifelong friendships, that is, that is just happening so fast with them. It's hard for them to keep up, I guess, with all their emotions. Absolutely. <laughs> That's why we always say, you know, my goodness, the hormones are out of control. <laughs> you know, with that age group. 
So, that is for sure, and I don't know if we ever outgrow that, but <laughs> but boy, it's it's that, yeah, that's when it's launched and it's fur and it's full. Uh, well, in some cases, it's full fury, right? That's for sure. So we have these main characters: uh, Tristan, Billy, and Sasha. Why don't you start by telling us about them? Tell us about Tristan first. Oh, Tristan is he is a smart, bright talented young person he's a poet he's a lacrosse player and he puts his heart and soul into everything he does and he is probably the most loyal friend you could ever have and um you know he's got his two friends there he's got billy and sasha they all grew up together they've known each other since kindergarten preschool (laughs) days in the sandbox throwing sand at each other and they've always been there for each other through thick and thin. And they're trying to go into their next stage of life. And they're moving on. And they all manage to get into this fantastic school. And they're sticking together to figure out whatever they need to do to make this work. Part of the plot of this is that... Tristan is really attracted by Marcella. Absolutely. Tell us about Marcella. <laughs> Marcella is posing as a research assistant. And that's how they kind of bump into each other and meet. And um, she's got a lot of secrets and a lot of backstory going on, which is fun and add something to it because she's not human. (laughs) So they don't know this. He doesn't know. And he just thinks she's fabulous, which she is. And she exudes all those things that attract him, confidence and intelligence and all those things that he finds amazing in a counterpart. And as the story unfolds, we find out that She's a vampire, and a lot of fun, and a lot of mystery ensues. <laughs> a lot of fun, a lot of mystery, a lot of intrigue. Absolutely. <laughs> yes, because kind of events spiral out of control when one of the students gets lost in the tunnels beneath the school's campus. Yes, he does. <laughs> um, what ends up happening is, Bryce, who happens to be an art student, he's, he's not with the jocks of the school. He's an art student, and um, he goes missing. And his best friend kind of accuses Tristan and his friends of foul play. So Tristan then feels he has to rise to the occasion and prove that this is not what's going on. And uh, he gets Marcella involved. And they're going to organize a search party, and they're going to find Bryce in those tunnels. And that's where things get really interesting. Friendship is a very important part of the book, a really important theme. Yes. It is just something that I think we all need that in life. That's what builds us up. That's what can give us the strength to to face all the challenges that we have, make the better choices that we need to make especially young people, they have untold choices ahead of them. 
and they really need strength to draw from in order to make those better choices. And a strong, strong base in friendship is only going to add to that and help with that and enhance their lives. And that's where you realize how important those friendships really are. And of course, another underlying theme, very important, just the use of our talents and skills, because, you know, we, we need to learn them, learn to use them to the fullest. These teenagers are understanding who they are. Absolutely, absolutely. And it's picking and choosing, and you're, you're going to try so many different things as a young person. You're going to try all the different things available to you, whether it is reading or sports or music or art, all these different outlets. Um, and there, you need to channel your creativity in all these different ways. That's going to enhance your life, but it also makes you the person that you are. It also gives you some kind of focus. And those are very difficult things as a young person. You're, you're trying to really tune those gifts. We all have natural gifts. We have to kind of tune them and focus them. And that leads to what are we going to do in life? Who are we going to become? What kind of career are we going to choose? We want to be happy. And in order to be happy, you really have to focus towards something that you love. Dream big. Absolutely. The bigger, the better. Yeah, follow those <laughs> dreams. Exactly. So you also say, and this is going to be, you're going to have to obviously without giving everything away, but just, can you make a comment on this uh, interesting twist in your book, which explains why the school attracts vampires? <laughs> <laughs> That's something well, that everybody should know because you may want to take a close look at the school your kids go to. <laughs> you might want to. That is true. Um, I, I don't want to give too much away, but I will tell you that it has to do with the mind. And that is why that piece of property adjacent to the mines was so important that the school be built there so that there was ready access to the mines. And there's something about an elixir that's very important. Definitely. <laughs> so, anyway, it's, uh, it's one of those page turners, especially for teenagers, and uh, a, a great way for parents and teens to read maybe this together and talk about it because it has all these great, great real-life themes that we all as parents want for our children and deep within all our, our our children, teenagers, they want them as well. So fantastic job, Linda. Thank you so much, Steve. Tell us how to get your book, Surviving Curtis Hall, The Lure of Blood. Well, the book is available on Amazon. It's available in Barnes & Noble. I know most people love the fact that they can click a button get anything at their fingertips, and it's certainly available in all those ways. Hardcover, softcover, ebook. You could even go to your bookstore and order it. Some people still love to do that. I know I'm one of them. <laughs> Definitely. Absolutely. Linda Matthews, thank you so much for being with us on iUniverse Radio. It has been my great pleasure, Steve. Thank you. 
You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Show me the money! Okay, we will. We're going to teach you how to tell your money where to go. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. Learn how to be a savvy investor from someone who has your best interest at heart. Pam Otten is a financial advisor who loves to help successful business owners and entrepreneurs understand the mysteries of the investment world. And she's not afraid to share that knowledge. Pam is an unashamed Christian and qualified kingdom advisor, which means she's trained and committed to integrating biblical principles into her financial advice. Pam believes investing isn't rocket science. This is the financial advisor who's in your corner and truly understands and cares about you and helping you achieve your goals. Securities and advisory services are offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA SIPC. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. Connect with Juliana and connect with what lies beneath. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Juliana is a marriage, family, and child therapist who wants people to connect. Connect with what lies beneath, those truths and answers. And through her counseling practice, she has helped others find their personal power and fulfill their dreams. And she wants to do the same for you, here on Connect with Juliana. Through intimate discussions, intriguing subject matters, and the expertise of her guests. For more on the show and Juliana, check out her webpage, connectwithjulianainmedia.com. Juliana will cover it all. Nothing is off limits. She wants to know what matters to you. Make the connection. Tune into Toginet to connect with Juliana to find out the facts that could be hidden beneath the surface. Connect with Juliana on Toginet to make a quality connection in your life. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Dynamic Urban Design, a handbook for creating sustainable communities worldwide. And the author is Michael Von Hausen, and Michael joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Michael. Hi, good afternoon. Great to Pleasure have you. to be here. Well, it's great to have you here. Urban design is long overdue. I don't know if you can ever stay ahead of it with the way the population is increasing, but let's talk about, uh, let me just read a couple of things you've written about your book. You say, my book presents a dynamic urban design model by which cities and communities can be planned, designed, and built that is more environmentally sensitive, socially responsible, and economically efficient. Well, we could just spend all our time just talking about that sentence. <laughs> that kind of sums it up very, very well. Uh, it's community-based, comprehensive, and dynamic, built for change. Well, before we get into some of the details, uh, Michael, tell us about your background. Uh, you've been at this uh, quite a long time, uh, many decades, and why you decided to write this book. Uh, excellent question. Uh, I have been practicing now for over 30 years. I, I've taught in the United States at university and in Canada. Um, uh, I graduated from Harvard University about 30 years ago with a master's in urban design, but also with a specialty in real estate development. And over the years, uh, I found that in working in both the private and public practice, I worked for the city of Vancouver, as you know, is renowned for its quality of design. I worked with them for 10 years. And I found that uh, 
what's failing in many cases is a community-based process that is really uh, based on a sense of place and uh, that incorporates not only the physical but the social and then the ex uh, the economic prosperity component all hugely important so in that discovery I said well this has to be documented and uh, I thought and my approach is always applied theory so in this book I have um, 15 uh, first-hand case studies uh, from the round, around the world uh, that provide not only professionals, students, but also community advocates and politicians uh, the tools for doing it right. In other words, creating a community-based uh, approach that ends up in ground-based, that is, community-based support uh, and a, a great urban design plan that combines uh, that green and sustainable component with the aspect of economic resilience. And I think that's um, the key to really developing uh, future cities. And as you know, uh, as we approach 7 billion population around the world, uh, we have to design our cities in such a way that um, they're not only resilient, but they evolve over time to become again, a great attractor factor for uh, people who live there. You've received quite a few great reviews. I'm just reading one. Finally, in one book, A Complete Guide to the Theory, Practice, and Potential of Urban Design by one of Canada's preeminent urban designers. So that's a feather in your, obviously, your urban design uh, hat Let's uh, get right down to basics, Michael. What is dynamic urban design? Well, it's well, it's interesting. Urban design in itself is simply uh, the process by which design by which cities and communities are planned, designed, and built. What this adds to that basic urban design um, aspect is the dynamism. That is. The aspect of time, how do we actually design cities that are not static, that are not evolving to become more prosperous, uh, more healthy? And that's something I think we've been uh, remiss about. In other words, we've, we continue to design buildings, but we're uh, remiss in terms of designing dynamic cities that can actually bring nature into them the incredible engines, evolving engines of economic prosperity, and then that all um, integrated with uh, socially responsible uh, land use planning uh, that includes uh, everyone, and um, both in process and in product. Now, your model you say will improve world cities, this whole dynamic urban design process. And you talk about using nine elements as the, uh, as part of this model. Now tell us a little bit about how this model is divided up and, and these elements are put into place. Excellent. Uh, I think um, I'll explain it in a, uh, for the, for um, people who are listening it's broken into three components. The first one is the framework, and the framework uh, is uh, made up of place, that is the importance of place and the people there, the history of place, 
the process that is a customized process that fits the place and a series of plans, not one urban design plan, but a series of plans that actually set out things like mobility, land use, housing frameworks, and so forth. That's the first overall framework. Sometimes that is the limit of urban design. The second element are the components, what I call the C components. The first S stands for social, the second E stands for ecological, and the third E stands for economic, which collectively uh, creates that social, uh, physical, and economic prosperity um, components that normally are represented in the sustainable model. Now then, those two, the first two, that is place, process, and plans, the C components as I outlined, are then measured, and this is very important in what, what I call the third component, measurement. The measurement component includes elements, that is what makes a successful urban enclave, the principles, that is what should guide the development of, of urban, that is both downtown, suburban, and rural, those are three kinds of urbans, and finally, um, those two are combined with targets, that is specific measurements that can monitor and see the success of the process as it moves along and as it is realized. This is not just theory, obviously. You're, I, I think everyone's catching a sense of how practical this. This is a handbook, as you say, and you have a, a number of case studies. Now, tell us about some about those case studies, why it's so important to have those in this book. Well, you know, we read we read so much about award-winning projects, and my experience, interesting enough, is you hear about a project and or you read about a project in a magazine, then you go out and see it and experience it, and you immediately say to yourself, "Wow, there are certain aspects of this that I think are successful because you're observing it." Uh, but what I found is first-hand case studies, in other words, through my practice, starting again how the process evolved to the product really gives the reader a first-hand profile of not only the success factors that lead, led to its approval and building, but also the lessons learned in terms of uh, possibly oversights, um, Little keys, I have a number of checklists in the book that really inform the, the or provide as part of the handbook, um, a list to just check against, have I covered everything in this particular community process? Are, uh, am I measuring the right things? What about the community process? Can I, what questions should I um, ask the community to really find out what makes this a great neighborhood or place? and then add to that um, uh, what I call place-keeping elements, and the collective of that creates a great place. So I really wanted to uh, provide both, again, rigorous theory, but more important for this world, we need applied case studies that show us where we've been very successful and how we can improve, and most importantly, provide tools for those practitioners, community advocates, and politicians out there uh, so they can go out and if they have a similar project, they can, again, reference it and say, this is what happened here. 
well, how does this apply, this real experience, apply to our situation? And how can we apply those, um, call it universal uh, principles to our own project to create not only immediate great urban design, but an evolving, enduring urban design? Can a layperson without urban design experience use this book? Absolutely. You know, the the interesting thing there is um, I've used two editors on the project, and I think what was most um, revealing to me was when one of uh, my colleagues uh, phoned me and we were having uh, a little book launch, and he couldn't attend. And he said to me, he said, Oh gosh, I I really love this book and I said, "Why do you why do you like it?" He said, "Because your voice comes through." And my voice, mm. uh, the voice or the intention of this book is to be at a grounded level. In other words, translate a lot of I think what we would both refer to as esoteric language down to um a language that can be used by community advocates, by interested citizens, uh, and even uh, my wonderful wife, Laura, said 40 pages into it, she said, wow, this is very interesting. I want to read more. Uh, so the audience I'm focused on is certainly, from an academic standpoint, I think it's a great, um, it's a great book as an overall reference. But most importantly, my mission, uh, what I want to do, is use this as a tool to transform, especially... Um, there's many uh, cities in the United States that need help that are on second or third tier. In other words, they don't get the attention of the big cities. Uh, Canada the same, and many international cities who really need help. This is a tool for them, um, whether it be the top, uh, the mayor or the council, down to um, uh, simply the planner or the community advocate. I want this as uh, a hand reference for those people to inspire them to say, I can help change my community, and this, this is a tool, these case studies are a tool to help in that transformation. Well, Michael, what makes a great city design? I guess I could summarize them in terms of four ingredients to great city design. The first is place, and that's the heart of my book. A great city is beautiful, incorporating nature, timeless architecture, and that grandeur. In other words, a framework for city, uh, city form, including views, waterfronts, city buildings, public plazas, and grand parks. In other words, it's really got to have a heart and dynamism to it. The second aspect is a city has to be accessible. Great city is an accessible and compact um, unit with a variety of ways to move through it that are convenient, safe, and what we miss largely in North America is this aspect of affordability. The third element is prosperity. Um, through my education and so forth, sometimes the economics of a city is, is regarded, especially from the development standpoint, is not, and the design community is not seen as a a great thing, and I believe it's an incredible driver. Um, in other words, a great city is prosperous, enduring in terms of creating meeting places where jobs, employment, and ideas are generated and nurtured. So it's much more than just dollars and cents. It's about 
the tradition of a gathering place for people to come together to really do and rise to their highest. The final thing of a city is it also has, besides being grand and large in terms of uh, sensational experiences, it also has to have the smallness of neighborhood. That is, a great city blends civic place inspiration with the magical smaller places that create intimacy and home. Is your book only about downtowns? That's interesting because normal urban design talks about, you know, many of the books talk about the grand downtowns. And in fact, it's really uh, about downtown suburbs, which I believe is the next frontier of what they're calling suburban retrofits. In other words, we have to go back in and densify, create um, create great communities where there's only single uses. People refer to it as uh, suburban sprawl. And then there's something that's just evolving. It's called rural sprawl. In other words, all those 8 to 10 acres that people are buying up um, uh, that really need uh, small-town urban design, design. So the whole suburb, rural, village, and city work together as a regional unit. In your title, you talk about sustainable. Now, how does sustainability fit, and what does it mean? You know, the sustainability actually is um, part of the system of the book. That's really the hook to the book, because sustainability in itself is not enough. It's simply a theory and an attitude. What this book tries to do and I think it is successful in doing so, it connects the theory of sustainability with the practice of urban design. So, in fact, we operationalize that abstract idea in, in many minds comes, uh, comes real through the practice of dynamic urban design process. We've been listening to Michael Von Hausen. He is the author of his book, Dynamic Urban Design, a handbook for creating sustainable communities worldwide. Michael, tell us how to get your book. Well, the best thing is through, uh, we've got a number of venues. You can look on, naturally, the iUniverse uh, website. Um, it's accessible in hardcover, uh, softcover, and also an ebook version. For those people who are uh, love downloading and reading off their uh, iPads, now obviously the um, uh, other venues are uh, Amazon. It's also available on Amazon.com and uh, the Barnes and Noble website. Look under their uh, Rising Star program because it's there. Thank you so much, Michael, for being with us on iUniverse Radio. My pleasure iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.